Today's Untold talks with Nick Ray about Cambodia and a potted history of modern-day tourism in this beautiful country in Southeast Asia that's been faced with many political challenges and turbulent past in our lifetimes. Nick talks about how he first became aware of Cambodia via Blue Peter and made several visits post-university, eventually making Cambodia a home. Nick met his wife Kulika Soto, who had started a successful and growing tourism business with her mother. That business was Hanuman Tours. With journalist credentials, aptitude, and considerable writing talent, Nick managed to secure the very first Lonely Planet Cambodia guide and has gone on to write over 50 travel book assignments. Hanuman Tours have grown markedly over the years and have in place a formidable network of tour operator partners around the globe, ensuring that thousands of travellers every year have the best possible experience for their visit to the Kingdom of Wonder. Nick and Kulika have also grown a significant film business, which from a small scouting trip for five, has grown to include Hollywood blockbusters, documentaries, adverts, BBC, Discovery and National Geographic assignments. Hanuman Films also produced The Last Reel, which was directed by Kulika and produced by Nick and has collected significant plaudits and awards on the festival circuit. Enjoy, Untold, on location in Cambodia with travel writer Nick Ray. How does a Watford lad end up running a successful tourism and film business in Phnom Penh, Kingdom of Cambodia? Yeah, I mean, for me, coming to Cambodia was uh, was a, a sort of long story. I first came here in uh, 1995 as a backpacker. I'd heard about Cambodia as a, as a young child because of Blue Peter, the children's program, and they had this uh, famine appeal for Kampuchea in 1980 and so it was all over the television and you know everyone was watching the the meter tick up towards a million pounds and doing bring and buy sales and school sales and so Cambodia was sort of in the back of my mind and then after university I studied history and politics and of course Cambodia has a particular turbulent modern history and political situation so it was very interesting for me along together with of course the Vietnam conflict and so after university I ended up traveling uh, around Southeast Asia for uh, a prolonged period um, between jobs and I uh, was trying to establish myself as a freelance journalist and ended up spending about three weeks in Cambodia at the tail end of that trip. I came in for a week and, uh, you know, because it was a bit risky back then and there was still fighting going on and it was still a little bit unstable at the last phase of the civil war. But, um, you know, ended up finding the lie of the land, you know, got to meet some people and other older journalists and ended up uh, having a good look around. And it really took my interest. So I found myself coming back uh, year after year in 96 and 97 trying to write more stories and eventually ended up hooking up with uh, Lonely Planet and doing the Cambodia chapter of uh, Southeast Asia on a shoestring and during that process I met my uh, my wife Kulika who was running a travel company called Hanuman Travel with with her mother which they'd set up back in the early 90s and then before I knew it Cambodia had claimed me and uh, here I am 22 years later. Fantastic. So, so you mentioned meeting Kulika and also the tail end of the civil war and Cambodia opening up for tourists. 
was that around the mid nineties? And um, how did you actually meet Kulika? Yeah, I mean, in terms of tourism for Cambodia, it was very stop-start in the 90s. So um, they, they set up the, what was called the General Directorate of Tourism in 1988. So kind of as communism was beginning to unravel a little bit um, under Gorbachev, so they were, they were withdrawing support for these far-flung communist outposts like Vietnam, Cambodia, Cuba, and so on. And so they had to kind of uh, live on their own means, and that meant exploring and opening up to tourism. And actually, Kulika's mother was one of the first tour guides because she had survived the Khmer Rouge and she spoke English and French. So this new department put out a kind of call for uh, English or French speakers to be the first generation of tour guides, and she was uh, chosen as one of those. So she actually was the official guide for King Sihanouk when he returned from exile in uh, 1991. And so she started leading groups of visiting tourists around, which were very few in number, as you can imagine, it was seen as quite dangerous, quite closed, quite difficult. And so she took people around. And during that time, she got the idea to set up a sort of small travel consultancy, if you like, you know, armed with a kind of of probably a telex machine and a giant sized dom jolly mobile phone she was basically you know trying to to bring in tourists and uh, set up a little business and she ended up uh, setting up that with with her daughter kulika who was just finishing school and she had a small amount of airline experience so she'd worked for um i think bangkok airways when they first set up here in 91 92 and also um, with thai airways so they kind of set up this mother and daughter company called Hanuman Travel, which was eventually given license number 004. So really one of the earliest established companies. And then what you had was because of a series of problems, like you had things like kidnapping of Westerners in 94, quite a few, you know, people were ambushed on a train by the Khmer Rouge, people were taken from Highway 4. You had, um, you had then a, a kind of coup, or which is, you know, a, a sort of power struggle in 97. So tourism never really got a firm foothold. People began to come, and, but the numbers always hovered around 100 to 200,000. And it was only really with um, the end of the Civil War in 1998 and the death of Pol Pot, the fall of the old Khmer Rouge base of Ang Long Veng, that was really the takeoff point. And really from sort of 99 onwards, or the, certainly the millennium, Cambodia was firmly established as a new destination or a new frontier in Southeast Asia. Fantastic. And Madame Sotia is still active in terms of having the, the guest house in Siem Reap and the antiquities business and still still has a role within Hanuman Tours, from what I understand. Yeah, correct. I mean, she's now, uh, I wouldn't give her age away, but let's say um, the other side of 70. <laughs> and she, yeah, but she's still uh, involved running what's now called Montre Nivesha Hotel in Siem Reap. And... Uh, basically things to do with the hotel side and also gets involved with the, the French language market because she's of that generation that went to a French speaking lycée in Phnom Penh and so has that very clipped uh, French and is very comfortable in that francophone environment. So yeah, she's still involved uh, in, in, the, in the bits that she's still interested in and enthusiastic about. And when the company went and Cambodia started to open up more and though the, the growth rate really drew a global interest. How did you and Kulika and, and Madame Sotia really ensure that Hanuman Tours went from being licensed 004 to, to having such a, a global presence and, and, and a strength in a lot of what are now the major source markets for the kingdom today? Yeah, in terms of Hanuman's growth, I think a lot of it came on, obviously, as I said, the 90s were very tricky. So there were a handful of small companies, but it was always a stop-start process. And, you know, one step forward, one step back, when every time there was an incident or a problem or a, or a battle or a kidnap, that people would be cancelling or delaying or changing. 
So once it began to take off in 2000, I think you know they there was an existing market they had, particularly a, a French-speaking market, which was successfully established by Soto during her trips to France, Belgium, and Switzerland. And what I began to do together with Kulika, because of obviously our our sort of Anglophone or English connection, we began to look at markets such as the UK, um, the US, and so on. So we began uh, arranging meetings with leading travel companies and. You know, sometimes it was luck. Um, sometimes it was was judgment. And obviously, one of the keys I would say was was having strong product and focusing on unique exper unique experiences, um, original products, things that other companies didn't offer. So you know, whether it's something like a photographic scavenger hunt around Angkor Tom, or whether it's uh, on location uh, at Angkor using movies as a theme to introduce people to the temples. You know, we were always trying to come up with different angles. And one of the famous ones you may remember was temple safari. So using African style safari tents to take people to these very remote temples that were fairly inaccessible and, and had no accommodation. So, you know, I think in some ways, you know, some of our early partners have gone from strength to strength and that helped us grow as well. So a very good example that you would remember is orderly travel. So orderly travel started as Asian journeys, tiny little company um, in the UK with a couple of staff rebranded as Audley Traveller around about 2000 and uh, we started working with them about 2001 and of course they've gone on to become one of the powerhouses of the UK and US market with well certainly uh, before the pandemic they had something like uh, approaching a thousand staff and uh, you know one of the most successful travel company stories in the industry. And a fantastic induction program because I remember we, we worked closely together and, and you, you obviously managed the Audley account for incoming to Cambodia, but every new starter on that Indochina team for Audley had something like a 21 day induction where they'd come to the region, stay at their preferred hotels, like the Raffles Le Royale and Raffles Grand Hotel de Angkor. Then they'd move on to Laos, Vietnam, an induction program that pretty much unique to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Audley invest a lot of money in their staff. They're consistently in like, you know, the Guardian top 50 companies to work for and, and these various metrics. I mean, basically everyone that joins, yeah, has to go on, on this uh, induction fam trip for somewhere between two and four weeks, depending on how lucky they are. And you're right, they normally get given a brief of two or three countries. So they might become country specialists in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, or maybe Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia. But basically, they get a real hands-on, in-depth look. Most of them, of course, have been to the region before as backpackers, but what they don't necessarily know when they begin is, is the kind of more orderly style market. So more like, uh, you know, higher-end four-star boutique hotels, five-star luxury hotels, and so on. So orderly, it's very important for them to get to know their client and get to know their, their products and their market. And, uh, you know, and they also send people on fam trips year in, year out. So, you know, in a, in a given busy year, we might host something like, 10 to 20 orderly staff on fans. So they really are investing in their staff and uh, that their growth has helped Hanneman's growth. Absolutely, superb company, orderly traveler as obviously a Hanneman. In, in addition to Hanneman tours, Hanneman films have, have clearly also expanded and, and um, continued to, to grow year on year. Um, when you became involved early on, tourism clearly was the focus when you started to do the the film crews and and uh, Kulika obviously developing the motion picture, the last reel of which you executive producer, did you ever think it could could grow to become as important a part of the business as it is today? Yeah, I mean, Hanuman Films has, has become very critical, uh, particularly at these times when tourism is somewhat grounded, you know, having the film side of the business kind of 
keeps us alive, if you like. So I think when you look back, I mean, it began sort of uh, accidentally, as many of these things do. I mean, neither myself, I didn't have any background in film or television, and Kulika also only a background in tourism. So, you know, I suppose for me, the closest was really journalism and a sort of slightly a sort of media background. But what actually took us into it was, well, first of all, we, we got in touch with what was then Lonely Planet Television, because by then I was already a Lonely Planet writer writing Cambodia and, and some other countries. But they also had this TV show, which used to go out on Channel 4. It's actually still going, but it's now branded as Pilot Guides or Pilot Trekker, and it's on Discovery. But basically, I got in touch with them, and I, I made the case for Cambodia to be uh, included in the next series, because the Civil War had ended, Pol Pot was dead, Cambodia was just taking off. We just released the new Lonely Planet Cambodia guidebook, third edition, which I'd worked on. So it seemed like the perfect time. And I, we actually pitched them this show and they ended up uh, agreeing and, and putting it into the series. And then we ended up working as kind of the fixers or line producers with the crew. So that was a, a small crew of five and about a three week shoot. And then it kind of went from that to, to something of completely different proportions as a Tomb Raider came to town. And we actually, we were, we were working with a British location manager on an Oliver Stone project called Beyond Borders. And he was meant to be coming out to do some scouting. And that film was gonna be partly shot in Cambodia. It was eventually made with Angelina Jolie and uh, Clive Owen, and it was shot in Thailand instead of Cambodia. And each country, I think it was Morocco instead of um, Ethiopia and so on, because it was set in the NGO world and, and these aid workers traveling to all these conflict zones. But at the time it was meant to be Meg Ryan and Oliver Stone was coming in to direct. He and it all fell apart as sometimes movies do. And he never came for the scout, even though we'd already done two weeks scouting. But while we were in Siem Rep, in the aforementioned Raffles Grand Hotel, Dancor, um, the, the British um, lo location manager got a call from the Tomb Raider crew. And they're like, oh, you know, we've heard you're the man for Cambodia. And of course, he's only been in the country a week. Yes, I'm the man for Cambodia. Um, we're thinking of Siem Rep to do some scouting at Angkor. Yes, I'm in Siem Rep now. Um, we're thinking of staying at Raffles, the Grand Hotel. Yes, I'm in the lobby right now. So it was very serendipitous that we happened to be on this Oliver Stone Beyond Border scout when the Tomb Raider crew got in touch. So within a couple of weeks, found myself scouting for um, Tomb Raider and taking Simon West, the director and other people around. And uh, they decided to shoot in Cambodia. And of course, that was extremely complex because it was the first major uh, feature film to be shot in Cambodia since before the Civil War. So the 1960s, which was, I think, Lord Jim with Peter O'Toole. So we had to kind of navigate a bureaucratic maze, try and you know find the right path, make the right contacts, not not burn bridges, not, not sort of send them down the wrong path. And eventually it, it all worked and we had a very good shoot. And uh, on the back of that, with the success of Tomb Raider and the fact that Apsara Authority and the government were happy with how everything went and we, were, we, we weren't kind of a band from Angkor, if you like, we decided that yes, we would, we would keep Hanuman Films going as a production entity. And then in the in the 20 years since, you know, it's some years are busier than others, but we normally have a steady stream of television productions for BBC, Nat Geo, Discovery, Animal Planet, Travel Channel. We normally have a couple of TVCs or commercials. We've had people like Louis Vuitton, we've had um, Tui, we've had Pepsi, etc. for international commercials. And then also we have, as you rightly mentioned, we've done the uh, feature films. So We've done uh, international feature films, small and big budget, but we've also begun to do our own productions. So the last reel was the, the best known to date, which won the Spirit of Asia Award at the Tokyo International Film Festival. Went on to do a, about 60 or more film festivals. And it also won the Founders Grand Prize from Michael Moore at the Traverse City Film Festival, the Oscar winning director. So yeah, it's, I mean, at the time when you look back and Lonely Planet 
crew of five <laughs> wandering around Cambodia with no experience, who would have thought it? We certainly wouldn't have had a clue that we'd go on to be a, a fully fledged production company making our own films. Um, so yeah, it's been quite a journey. And anyone with Netflix can, can see you featured currently on the, the Jack Whitehall program and the, the David, David Chung street food documentary, which, which somewhat was surprising, Nick, how much street food they ate in Cambodia. Is that something that is being actively promoted now? It is, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, the minute, well, that's one of the projects we're working on at the moment, the Ministry of Tourism uh, with its partners from uh, Agence Française de Développement, who are doing a tourism capacity building program. They've actually commissioned a food video, which we're working on, on Cambodian food. And they're also doing a separate project of, of a map and a sort of small online and print guide to street food and local food. So I think that it's kind of food in Cambodia is one of the great unknowns. You know, everybody knows Thai food and Vietnamese food. There's Thai and Vietnamese restaurants all over the world. But um, apart from, say, Paris and, uh, you know, Los Angeles and a few places with a large Cambodian community, there aren't really many Cambodian restaurants anywhere. I mean, you think of the UK as a great example. There's probably about half a dozen I've ever heard of in the whole country. And even some of those are kind of billing themselves as, as Indochina or Chinese or something else. So I think there's, you know, Cambodian food has a, a lot of uh, subtlety, a lot of diversity, but it's just not well known. So you can imagine sandwiched between these culinary giants of Thailand and Vietnam, it's got a huge amount to offer. So I think that given how important food tourism and culinary tourism is, I think that's a real growth area for Cambodia in future. Excellent. Lonely Planet, you've mentioned a, a number of times, and I think in addition to Lonely Planet, but you've, you've done over 50 guidebooks to date, obviously a specialist on Cambodia. You recommended to me going to Luang Prabang for a family vacation, which was one of the best experiences I've had. You recommended Hoi An in Vietnam, which again, one of the best places I've been in Asia. But you're also an expert in Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi. So how did the Lo Lonely Planet Guide take you out of Indochina and suddenly make you a somewhat African expert as well? Very fair question. I mean, yeah, I, I started with Cambodia. So I was, um, Cambodia came around in uh, April 98. So I'd actually been in touch back and forth with Lonely Planet in 96, 97, sort of, you know, saying that I was a young journalist, that I'd spent time in Cambodia, giving them kind of useful trip notes and, and areas for improvement on the next edition. And of course, this was pre-internet, which probably hard for younger listeners to, to imagine. But, you know, I was writing physical letters to them and posting them and they were writing type letters back to me. And I think it was only in about February 98 that I got my first uh, email address. So I set up a Hotmail account or something like that. And so I was eventually offered this Cambodia contract for Southeast Asia, which I did. And then I went on and back of that, I was then given the, uh, the Cambodia book to do, the full country book. So that was a time when Cambodia was really opening up. So I began to expand the coverage dramatically because obviously the previous edition had been written in something like 95 and the country was quite unstable and the, the civil war was still rumbling on so the coverage was was somewhat limited i think the book was probably only about it was sub 200 pages when i took it over so i immediately expanded it by about 100 pages and, and continued doing that for two or three editions to get it to the kind of size it is today and then yeah and then most of my work in more recent years as you say has been cambodia Laos, vietnam or myanmar so i've sort of become a a kind of Mekong region or Southeast Asia specialist, but I did have these very interesting forays into Africa, as you rightly point out. So when I suppose when you first start off when you're younger, you know, this when 1998, I was what, I was probably 26 back then, 
25, 26, when I first started working for them, you know, the world is your oyster. You suddenly realize that you're working with Lonely Planet. Wow, what an incredible opportunity. And you realize that they've got a stable of guidebooks to everywhere in the world. And of course, some places are less popular than others um, or harder to find writers than others because of whatever reason, remoteness, perceived danger factor, all sorts of things. So with, without generalizing, it was, you know, I think perhaps in some parts of Africa, it was harder to find um, the relevant writers than others, or there wasn't as much take up. So um, yeah, an opening came up on what was called the East Africa book, which included Kenya, Tanzania, and then the smaller countries of Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. And so I was commissioned to write that. So I spent an amazing few months in particularly Uganda, because I based myself out of there, which, you know, Pearl of Africa, one, you know, it's like African condensed. It's got, you know, the, the highest mountain range, the Wurundjeri's, the highest primate density, mountain gorillas, like stunning scenery. But then I also went into Rwanda for a couple of weeks. That was after, you know, only five years after the genocide. So things were still fairly raw there. And certain parallels between Uganda and Rwanda and Cambodia, if you like, whether it's civil war, Idi Amin and Pol Pot, genocide. And then I, of course, I even went into Burundi for a few days. And that was a real kind of flashback to Cambodia in the 90s. It was, it was actually still a civil war going on. So you could hear shelling in the mountains around the capital Bujumbura. And it was very unstable. So, yeah, that got, kind of got me into Africa. And I did about three or four three or four editions of the East Africa book and really focusing on Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi when it was possible to safely go in. And then unfortunately, I kind of ended up having to sort of give that up or choosing to give it up because, well, like you would know as well, um, along came children and Africa was just a little bit far to go. You know, you, I can commute to some extent to Vietnam or, or to Laos. You know, I can, I can break it down into three research trips of 10 or 15 days and come back for weekends and for a week at a time. With Africa, it's not really cost effective to do that. You know, it's so far, you've got a transit and, and the cost of the flights, you know, it's kind of all or nothing. So the idea of kind of going away for six weeks at a time with young children just became a, a little bit challenging. So really that I had one more toe dip in Africa in about 2012, 13, when I did part of the Zambia uh, chapter for Zambia, Malawi and Mozambique. But sadly, I haven't had the opportunity to, to do any guidebooks in Africa for some years. So if the chances came along, now the children are older, perhaps that's something I would sign up for. Wonderful. Cambodia has clearly Angkor Wat and, and the amazing temples of, of Angkor. You coined the phrase, I think in your original guide, that the largest religious structure in the world, and this is now repeated everywhere globally. <laughs> outside, of, outside of Angkor, you've also, as an organization and, and your good self in showcasing Kulen, Bante Sre, as well as temple ranges outside of Phnom Penh. How, how can Cambodia as a country attract more tourism in off season and not just being solely associated, though making the most of, of having Angkor Wat? Yeah, I mean, that's very important for Cambodia to diversify the, the tourist offering. I mean, I think certainly, first of all, look at seasonality. I think, yeah, people do tend to get over-focused on November to March, partly because it's obviously winter in the core markets of Europe, North America, and so on. Um, but also because the weather, as you remember, is very nice at that time. You know, it does get a bit cooler, so it drops into the 20s, and the nights can drop down to low 20s. 
and uh, you get nice winds and you don't get very much rain, but it still tends to be green, certainly in November, December, even into January. So, however, you know, the, the rainy season, the wet season, whatever you want to call it, I mean, we tend to call it the green season, of course, here, uh, repackaging it, that, that need not be a bad time to travel, partly because, of course, with, with climate change and so on, it's getting very hard to predict when the rains will come and go. It also is, it's a very green time, you know, the moats of Angkor are full, the rice fields are, are brilliant greens of, of different shades, and it's very lush in the countryside, places like Mondulkiri, the wildflowers come out, you know, the jungle's alive. And also, of course, price-wise, it's really good value. You know, Cambodia is very competitive, particularly destinations like, like Siem Reap. And so you end up with a lot of hotels having very good offers. You know, it may be pay two, stay three. It may be 50% off. It may be all sorts of add-ons and value adds. So I think, you know, certainly traveling in June, July, August, or tying in with Western summer holidays, if people wanted to try that for a longer summer holiday, that can be a good time. I mean, the only months it gets really wet I suppose, of September, October. And, you know, some people obviously would choose to avoid those. But generally, otherwise, um, the wet season can be very rewarding and, and just much better value to travel. In terms of diversifying the offer, I mean, it, it, is, it has begun more and more. As, I mean, particularly if we look at the UK market, people have begun to come to Cambodia as a standalone holiday and not just adding it on to Vietnam or, or Thailand or somewhere else. So I think, you know, um, the coast is really growing in importance. I think, you know, places like Kampot and Kep, they've even during the, the time of the pandemic for domestic tourism and expats, you know, they're packed every weekend. People are loving discovering, you know, the, the countryside around Kampot, the, the restaurant scene's really taking off. And of course, Kep with its beaches and its famous crab and pepper. Um, you know, the islands are very good. They're not, so, they haven't been so strong in the wet season because of course the crossing can be a little bit choppy um, going out to Koh Rong or Koh Rong Samlon, but we really expect them to do well in the, in the coming months with domestic tourism because, um, you know, the weather's going to be great. I think the other massive growth area for Cambodia, which is already beginning for the international market, but it's really taking off for the local market as well, is ecotourism. You know, as you remember, Cambodia's got quite a large network of national parks. It's got, you know, pristine environments like the Cardamom Mountains in the southwest around Koh Kong. Um, it's got uh, Mondulkiri and Ratnakiri in the northeast with its minority cultures like the Brunong people, the Jirai, the Krung with their different customs, elephants, you know, gibbons, etc. You've got the Mekong River dolphins in the, in the Mekong River near Krache. So for ecotourism, you've got really quite a good offering now. And uh, I think ecotourism is going to be very important in the post-pandemic world. You know, people are going to want to get back to nature. They want to, they're going to want to go trekking. They want to have healthy holidays. They might still be concerned about social distancing. So I think countries that offer a good ecotourism package and really good destinations to escape, you know, like going to so like we talked about earlier, something like Shintamani Wild for the luxury market, Cardamom Tented Camp for the mid-range market, homestays in Chipat for the backpacker market. These kind of getaway experiences into nature, I think, will become really important. And people will perhaps start extending their stay in one destination rather than trying to tick off every destination in the region in one visit. So you might have this kind of higher quality of tourism where people come to Cambodia and really spend a good 10 days to three weeks here and really explore thoroughly, including coast, including uh, national parks, including ecotourism destinations. How, how much pleasure and pride do, do you and Kulika and Madame Sotia and the Hanuman team take in the fact that the, the guides that are going out and, and taking global travellers from the UK, France, Australia, wherever they are, but the, the guides have gone through your training and the professionalism and the storytelling and history 
has all been covered by the courses that in effect that you've written does that make you particularly proud yeah thank you i mean the guide training is is very important and it, the guides are really the the number one asset of a tour operator or a destination management company you know because we i can go to london new york paris all over the world at itb in berlin wtm in london and, and and tell a great yarn and a great story and sell all these products and 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 get partners on side but it's about operating the tours on the ground and ensuring satisfied customers or going beyond expectations every time and that's really the guide's job you know it's the guides that are really the the kind of shop window for cambodia once you're there so yeah i mean i think you know it's really important to have a strong guide training program and it's particularly important for companies like hanuman that have a lot of unique products you know we have very specific products that aren't off the shelf so you know you can't just kind of give the itinerary to a random guy and expect them to be able to weave that story and that narrative uh, as you rightly said storytelling is a real part of it and a real skill you know it's not just about knowledge you know guides can can parrot encyclopedias back to front but that's not really entertaining and engaging so it's having the you know you know teaching them about what happened behind the scenes during the making of Tomb Raider that gives them a great story to tell. Like they're at the East Gate, they can actually tell people what happened. Yes, they weren't there, but if we train them well and show them well and, and play them the video clips, they really get a sense of it. So we do, yeah, every time we, we do like a couple of sessions of guide training a year, and we always have both the workshop element, which is really messaging and reinforcing the important messages, but we also always have a practical. So we always take one of our products out on the, on the road for a half a day or a day might be like living history of Phnom Penh where we go to key sites of the city and you know, French embassy you know you can't go in the French embassy but if you can tell the story about what happened there from the killing fields in an engaging way that becomes an interesting destination to include um, same with we have a really interesting one of our most popular tours is hidden trails of Angkor where we use mountain bikes or e-bikes to go around uh, you know all around the back trails of the temples that the locals use so these are jungle paths you don't turn up in a car park in a bus you ride through the forest and emerge on a, on a hidden gate with a face and this is where again you, you have to show guides the route um, because it's a very specific route and you also have to tell them interesting stories that they can tell along the way so yeah i think you know i think any company that doesn't take guide training seriously you know they're short selling themselves and i think it's important not just to train your permanent guides because you know you may only have four, five, six of those in any location, um, just because you, you know, you're only going to employ a certain amount of permanent guides. But you've also got to make sure you include your freelance guides. And obviously, you know, if you've got a sort of steady pool of 40 or 50, you know, I remember doing a, we had the, we hosted the Audley Guide Awards um, in CM Rep in, I think it was 2017. So we, you know, we put up, we had staff flying in from all over the world, including the chairman, Richard Prosser. We had 50 guides from all, from Japan to Sri Lanka and all points in between. And, uh, Basically, yeah, you know, we 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 took all of them on some of our different unique products, and uh, you know, they they really enjoyed it, and it really got them a sense of of what we're doing and and how we're training and so on. But you know, our guides obviously have consistently won awards like that, and when when uh, their product, they're one of their senior staffers over here, um, Alex Ross. We let him join guide training for the day, so he actually saw us take forty or fifty tour guides on mountain bikes round the hidden trails route, and then we did an open air workshop in Salakaday overlooking uh, the royal bathing pond of Strasrong. So you know, we nothing to hide. We're proud of our program, as you say, and we shared it with key partners like Audley because, of course, we want our guides to also know about them and what they offer and what's unique about our partners. Cambodia is also from a meetings groups and incentives perspective, had some seriously impressive incentive groups 
uh, and, and al alumni. I remember doing my, my years there, the, there's the Young Peasant Organization, and, and I believe you've also worked a lot with Harvard Business School and activities. What, what's the draw and what, what have you normally put together as a program for them when they visited the Kingdom of Wonder? Yeah, I mean, mice and, you know, is a very important aspect of, of the tourism industry or the events industry in Cambodia. I think, you know, the key in a way is, is the obvious, it, is the Angkor is the draw card. You know, people are drawn first and foremost because you've got Angkor as a backdrop or a playground to organise activities and events. I mean, as you say, we've, yeah, we've done, you know, Young Presidents Organisation, World Presidents Organisation. Um, Harvard was a little bit different. We've done their alumni tours, but we also did their uh, MBA uh, immersion experiences for a few years so they and in that case they came to Phnom Penh and it was actually more about businesses and you know having practical on-hand experience with real businesses in the developing world to actually develop strategies for their MBA so that was really interesting because we had about 60 uh, HBS students out every year and we had to partner them up with local businesses ranging from brown coffee to platinum cinemas um, but going back to Siemret where obviously most of the mice focus is I mean one thing to remember of course as, as you know from your long experience, it, a lot of it depends on hotels and accommodation. They are, you know, you need a certain standard of hotel, i.e. usually four-star or five-star, and you also need a specific number of rooms. Some of these groups are huge, therefore you need a, a huge hotel. I mean, I'll give you an example of one you, you're perhaps not up to date with so much, but we did a, a crazy one last year. So you, you may have heard of, or some of your listeners will have heard of Tony Robbins, the kind of lifestyle guru. Um, he's got that documentary on netflix i'm not your guru so you know he's basically all about you know carpe diem seize the day make the change you know he does these huge events like date with destiny in stadiums in america so he's a he's a big fish and he's got this um kind of program called the platinum program where people basically pay a lot of money annually to join his program and get access to him one-to-one -one and get access to networking and even travel events and so last year we hosted 140, <laughs> 140, um, Tony Robbins Platinums who came out and they basically did a, a couple of days in Siem Reap. Uh, no, yeah, they did about four days in Siem Reap and about two days in Phnom Penh, including some charitable contributions in Phnom Penh. And then up in Siem Reap, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, you know, we were doing like the hidden trails on, on mountain bikes. But as you know, when you've got groups that big, you've got to break them down into red group, blue group, yellow group, green group, you know, different numbers of tour guides, different numbers of people doing the zip line, doing the zip line in the morning, people doing the biking and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of juggling, a lot of management. And I tend to normally act as either the tour manager or the tour lecturer giving, you know, lectures on Cambodian history or the rise and fall of the Khmer Empire. Um, in that case, we also had to organize things like we did a, a boat race, you know, Siem Reap has its famous Bonhomme Tuk um, annual water festival. And they also do boat races on in Siem Reap on the Siem Reap River and in Phnom Penh on the Mekong or the Tonle Sap. And we, we organized an off-season special boat race for them. So we had kind of, you know, timers, clocks, you know, podium and medals. And we basically had to, to organize this May <laughs> boat race. And there are all sorts of other things like quad biking into the middle of nowhere um, and then having kind of a cocktail set up in the rice fields. But, you know, that took every single quad bike in Siem Reap arranged from three different sources and three different locations so yeah i mean as you know mice is extremely demanding and that but i think for us where we found it to be perhaps uh, easier to operate than some is because of our long experience in film 
So when we're looking after something like Tomb Raider or a huge production, we're dealing with hundreds of people, we're dealing with very tight schedules, you know, very specific catering, very specific timings, permissions and so on. And so you can easily move that kind of clinical approach to a film or to a, to a movie project to a MICE project. And of course, of course, you can offer video services at the same time, win-win. Absolutely, it's, it's logistics and it's attention to detail and uh, a lot of transferable skills and, and obviously you, you've got the capabilities and the, the sources and contacts within the kingdom to get to get those things done and yeah Tony Robbins is globally renowned he comes to Singapore when I was in London he'd sold that Excel so yeah I, I, I'm very aware of Tony Robbins but I hadn't hadn't known he'd, he did such a, a large event up in CM Reap so that's fantastic for the country's profile. So you touched a bit about Ecotourism. There's also, whenever I read updates to Cambodia or in trade press, there continues to be rumours about another Naga or another casino or casino in Siem Reap. How do you balance or try and push forward with an image of ecotourism being the route to take rather than necessarily the focus or the, the government investment being on casinos or larger group tours? Yeah, I mean, striking a balance between different types of tourism in Cambodia is a real challenge. I mean, it, it can characterize it as a kind of battle for the soul of Cambodia. And there are very differing visions, you know, both within the industry and beyond the industry. So, you know, even within tourism, there's certain types of people that, that do want to see mass development. You know, they do want to see high rise buildings. They do want to see casinos. But of course, there's a whole other school, which is more like the, the kind of DMCs and perhaps the traditional Western markets that would rather see a more sustainable uh, tourism, more eco-tourism, more, you know, more boutique hotels, more, more heritage hotels and so on. I think, you know, for me, they, they're obviously going to have to find a way to coexist because there's no way you can have only one, you know, Cambodia is going to have to somehow juggle this and move forward with both. I mean, you know, in some ways you've probably seen in the news, Sienupville's kind of been sacrificed, if you like, that's a, a strong word to use, but sacrificed to, to the casinos and to the mass market and probably mainly catering for Chinese moving forward. So you don't even really get Cambodian domestic tourists going there much anymore. They're going to Kampot and Ket. So I, I think what could be, if it's not too late perhaps, and it, it isn't in some cases, in, in many areas, would be zoning. I think Cambodia would really benefit from a, from a really focused approach on zoning and making sure that you know there is actually a, a medium to long-term plan on, on which areas and which islands and which, which regions are appropriate for which type of tourism so for example you know if it's an ecotourism area like a national park then clearly no casinos no high-rise buildings you know sustainable materials maybe um renewable energies like solar and, and wind you know no no uh, no coal no uh, no polluting power so you know i think that would be the way forward it would be to go okay you know cardamons mondalkiri ratnakiri these are ecotourism areas these are the rules um Seeing Upville, okay, that's that's already going down a certain pathway. But the islands are very important. You know, you you, you really the government really needs to think carefully about zoning on the islands or even protecting the islands because you know if, if suddenly people start building ten or twenty story buildings on Korong or you know it's going to dominate the beach. It's going to change the whole atmosphere. So I think having you know maybe even within the islands, maybe one island is allowed a certain level of development, another island has a different level. So really getting on top of that before it gets out of control, because you don't really want kind of Sienupville part two breaking out in, well, any other destination really. And as you say, with someone like Siemrep, 
we've seen how certain policies and zoning have actually worked to some extent. So if you, because of APSAR authority and UNESCO, you know, you've had this rule in place that you can't build above the height of Angkor Wat, and that actually limits, you know, the, the height of hotels to about four stories, maximum maybe five. But the point being that that prevents high-rise buildings and that prevents kind of changing the landscape of the town and the atmosphere of the town. And that's quite effective in a way, I would say. And so having those kind of policies in place are good and they should be rolled out more generally to other parts of the country. And kind of like you said, there are, you know, like there is story, there is kind of uh, big news now about Naga opening a resort, you know, not that far from Angkor Wat. And at the moment, at least they're talking about it being kind of a multi-use resort, but not definitely not a casino because casinos aren't allowed by law within something like a hundred kilometers of Angkor. So in other words, Poi Pet is further than that, the casino town on the Thai border, 150 kilometers away. So, but of course people do have genuine concerns about, you know, is it, is it gonna become a casino by stealth? I.e., you know, first of all, it's a multi-use resort, but then in five years time, the rules suddenly change. So, and there are concerns and I do think Cambodia has to be very careful because I mean, I don't want to keep mentioning it, but Sihanoukville is the perfect example. I passed through it just uh, last weekend briefly on the way to and from the islands. And, it, you know, it, it really is uh, kind of a bit of a mess. You know, the roads are in good condition now, but there's lots of unfinished skyscrapers, which when will they be finished? We're not really sure. There wasn't much sign of activity there. So you end up, you don't want to end up with this kind of half finished project in any particular destination in Cambodia. So, um, you know, I think they proceeding with caution and not being over ambitious in their project scale would be very useful. And I think certainly places that are for ecotourism really need to be protected and really have some building and uh, power guidelines in place. Well, I, balance is what you said. And I think balance and zoning is, is uh, a very pragmatic and sensible approach because no one wants to do anything for the kingdom that, that limits economic growth or stunts job opportunities and tourism as a whole. But like you said, when you're talking about casinos near Angkor Wat and, and other things, it would be uh, a tragic shame if any developments were to, to take that form just, just for short-term uh, profiteering or money over and above, you know, changing what's a fantastic and one of Asia's leading destinations that's been well-maintained so far. Yeah, no, definitely, exactly. But that's just briefly on the end of that topic, although it's not exactly related. I mean, as you'd imagine, you know, CMREP is... Is, is a place that um, you know is, is going to need some input and help after the pandemic because of course being the number one tourist destination it, it's also been the most impacted and it does sorry to say have a little bit of a feel of a ghost town at the moment so yeah job creation will be very important and uh, bringing tourists back as soon as is safely possible will be very important to get destinations like Siem Reap, Luang Prabang and so on back on their feet. Post lockdown this is a three-part question uh, where are you going to go on on with your your friends and your your motorbiking trips? Where are you <laughs> yeah. going to go on for a family vacation? And lastly, if if Lonely Planet are going to give you a call and say, we we've enjoyed Burundi, where where next? Where? where... <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think you know, I mean, one thing to mention briefly before answering it is, of course, Cambodia amazingly didn't have a lockdown. You know, we never had a lockdown. We had a, we had interprovincial travel was closed for six days around what was meant to be the original Khmer New Year in April. And that was just in case, but that was when there was a small scale community spread way back at the beginning of the pandemic, late March, early April. But actually in Phnom Penh, you know, they never closed restaurants arbitrary you know restaurants remained open some bars if they had a restaurant license remained open there was never any uh, stay at home orders so that was quite it did make cambodia 
quite a quite a good place to be in that sense uh, if you were able to keep working or if you had things to do. Um, but going back to post lockdown, yeah. So mates with mates motorbiking. I think, yeah, the, the obvious one there would be over the, through the Cardamon Mountains. Um, we've actually been talking about it, funnily enough, a whole bunch of us talking about hitting the Cardamons. You know, the Cardamons has got some new roads, uh, upgraded roads through it. So some of them are now asphalt or tarmac, and uh, they go through some very remote regions. And some of them you kind of see on, you know, social media like Instagram or Facebook, these kind of almost alpine or, you know, sort of mountain roads, that those hairpin bends and things, which you don't usually associate with Cambodia. So, so crossing the cardamoms on a motorbike um, as soon as, as soon as we have a time available will be a great thing to do. I think for family, I think you know it's probably going to sound really boring, <laughs> but it probably would be a family break to the UK because, of course, with you know the pandemics sort of kept people separated for so long, and you know we we usually go to the UK in the summer for a longer trip of say a month or so, and obviously we weren't able to do that this summer because of quarantine restrictions, lockdowns, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I haven't, haven't seen parents most of this year. I haven't seen great mates, haven't seen other family members. So, you know, probably would hot foot it to the UK and have a few drinks in the pub and, and catch up with families and friends. Um, and then in terms of Lonely Planet, I mean, yeah, it'd be great to get, get a call on the bat phone and, uh, and be asked to roll out somewhere in 2021. I mean, first and foremost, they'd probably ask me to do something in this region. I can imagine a patch-up job on places like CM Reap, you know, Nick, what's still open? What's closed? Because there will have been a lot of changes in a lot of destinations in this region. But if I was given a kind of choice of going anywhere um, realistic that they could send me, I mean, like we mentioned Africa, it probably would be somewhere back in Africa that I've never been. So the kind of places that spring to mind would be somewhere like maybe Angola in Southwest Africa. Again, a a kind of country that experienced civil war and troubles and you kind of see a pattern forming here but, but it would be interesting to see how it's got back on its feet and explore some of the remote areas or the other one that, that, that I've often wanted to go to in more depth I've only ever been through the capital briefly would be uh, Ethiopia and uh, exploring more of Ethiopia and the, the national parks and the the ancient kind of you know sort of uh, Coptic Christian history and so on very interesting and diverse destination by all accounts. Great answers, Nick. Thank you. Phnom Penh is uh, a super city. We had three great years there and sometimes overshadowed by Angkor Wat and obviously Siem Reap, which, which is understandable given that the, the, the sheer splendor of the temples. But take us through your dream day in, in Phnom Penh and what, what you'd spend your time doing. And, and if you were to be going to any restaurants or bars, where you'd recommend spending your time eating and drinking in Phnom Penh? Yeah, absolutely. That's a nice question and certainly made me have a think about it. It's always difficult, you know, when you're the Lonely Planet writer and people say, so what do you recommend? You kind of sort of freeze on the spot and suddenly your mind goes blank and you're unable, you know, you've got a whole guidebook full of recommendations, but you kind of lose them on the spot. I mean, obviously, going back to the time you were here, then probably the recommendation would have been meet you at the Green Vesper and spend the whole afternoon there. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, sadly, the green vesper is no more. Um, but in in the in terms of what these days, I mean, what would be a I guess an overall nice day, both for me and thinking as if you were a kind of visitor coming in. I mean, in terms of sites, there are a lot of them, but the one that stands out for me always is the National Museum because I love the building, which is now actually celebrating its hundredth anniversary this year when it was opened in 1920. Um, so exploring the National Museum, seeing the beautiful sculptures from Angkor, and you know, having a cold drink in the courtyard. Um, markets, Phnom Penh's got some great markets, you know, a lot of people like the Russian market for discounted shopping, like, you know, cl clothing from the factories, backpacks, you know, souvenirs. I would probably go to the central market just because the architecture is so iconic. It's that stunning sort of 
you know, um, sort of pyramidal structure built by the French in the late 1930s and have a wander around there, maybe have a, a cold drink or a snack. Um, lunch, you know, so many good restaurants in Phnom Penh. Um, one that, that's been struggling a bit, of course, like many in the pandemic, but that is a good one to support is, of course, Friends. So Friends uh, restaurant, they also had Rom Deng. They've got a really nice new courtyard. They've opened up the whole compound now, which used to be their training area. And they've got kind of like a, a little artisan market going on. They've got a nail bar, a hairdresser. They've got, you know, all sorts of little things. And they're not actually operating what used to be the old Friends restaurant because there's no tourists, of course. But they're operating more like a, a local restaurant called Let's Eat. And that's got like noodle soup, street food and everything else. And they're having they're organizing lots of little community events. So that's a nice one to support. And you can actually spend more than just a meal there browsing some of these other things going on in the afternoon. I mean, if if, I, if people are coming with families and I've got a family here, there's another really cool place in the south of town called the factory. And the factory literally is an old garment factory. And it's now being converted into a, a communal workspace, uh, an art space and uh, a kind of seed business space so you've got everything there from a skateboard park to a trampoline park to a really cool coffee shop um, feel good coffee you've got a microbrewery there two birds so you can literally kill two birds with one stone so you know dad or mum can go and have a microbrewery uh, chill out over a nice beer and the kids can jump around in the trampoline park or go skateboarding and there's all sorts of things going on down there it's a very active kind of again community area I think early evening, I would probably, you know, before uh, sundown, probably switch attention to the riverfront. Uh, the, as you know, the riverfront of Phnom Penh is very open and very nice. It's almost got that real tropical city feel with palm trees and so on. So have a stroll down the riverfront, see people doing their, you know, their aerobics or workouts uh, on the, in front of everyone on the river. And then probably just before sunset, hit, hit a sky bar. Phnom Penh's got a, a lot more sky bars these days. Um, there's one called Juniper, which is a a gin bar on the rooftop on 130 street with panoramic views of the city and the river or of course there's there's sora uh, up on on the top of the vatanak capital building which is the highest bar in town so you know basically taking city views and a sunset for dinner spoilt for choice but i guess you know cambodian food when in cambodia cambodian food i think malice remains one of the better cambodian restaurants uh, you know chef lu meng very well-known celebrity chef here and uh, really beautiful dining space and uh, a great selection of food and of course that puts you in pole position to then wander around the corner and enjoy the bars of Basak Lane. So Basak Lane is a really cool little sort of bohemian area where there's maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 hole in the wall bars. Some of them have got capacity for no more than six people. Some of them are much bigger. Um, one thing that you know obviously they were very tourist focused and, and expat focused before the pandemic. One great thing or one positive side development of the pandemic is uh, they've really been discovered and uh, claimed by many young Cambodians who are enjoying wandering around and going into White Rabbit for an Instagram opportunity or Harry's Bar sitting upstairs. So they're, they're, they're much more diverse now in terms of clientele and that's a really nice feeling. And, and you know, they some of them rumble on quite late so you can quite easily hang around in Basak Lane till the wee hours and have a, a classic Phnom Penh night. Sounds like a fantastic day. And, and what strikes me about that day is Aside from friends, none of those places were were there when I was there in uh, 2011, 2012. So city has shown great, great development in a short space of time. 
Yeah, that's it. Really true. I mean, it really has developed at breakneck speed. So we'll have to, as uh, soon as uh, you're able to travel again, we'll have to lure you back up here. But definitely Phnom Penh particularly, I guess, because that's the, the key thing about Phnom Penh is it, it's not a tourist city. It, yes, it has sizable numbers of tourists during normal times, but it is also the capital. So it's got, you know, a banking sector, insurance sector, retail sector, you know, all those other, there's lots of other businesses. And uh, that means the economy is, is quite strong in, and not just reliant on tourism, unlike Siem Reap. So even now, you know, places are still opening during the pandemic because, you know, people are still coming up with new ideas. You're also seeing a, a kind of migration of businesses from places like Siem Reap, you know, so where you've had these celebrity chefs in places like Siem Reap doing these really amazing meals for tourists, they're now thinking, well, hang on a minute, we should be offering this, you know, this fusion cuisine or this authentic Khmer cuisine down in Phnom Penh, because that's where the market is, that's where the money is. So people like Johannes from Cuisine Wat Dam Nak, um, people like the uh, Kim, Kim San sisters from Embassy in uh, Kings Road, those kind of chefs are now coming down here to open restaurants in partnership with established premises down here. So I think you are going to see the, the, what was already an excellent dining scene in Phnom Penh, you know, one of the best in the region and certainly one of the best value in the region for money. You're going to see it getting better. And actually Phnom Penh is one, the one destination in Cambodia that will probably emerge stronger from the pandemic. And I read that there may be a, a second movie coming out that, that uh, Kulika has been working on. Is, is there anything you're, you're allowed to publicly say about that or is it under wraps currently? <laughs> for you gareth i can say anything um well she's always you know we're always busy with different projects so um not necessarily a full narrative movie in the same sense as the last reel but you know ideas under development and so on but there are a number of projects ongoing which will be seeing the light of of day at some point uh hopefully in the next year so uh, one of them is um began actually as a rice project and looking into ancient rice customs that are still practiced to do with rice and the rice harvest around Angkor. So there's certain villages that have these, these ceremonies and they treat rice like, like a human being. So rice has a birth cycle, rice has a, a coming of age or puberty cycle. It has, you know, a marriage cycle, male and female, and it has a death cycle. So it's, it's really interesting. And they, they even create effigies in the shape of a body for the rice and so on. So she was actually began embarking on a story about rice as a sort of almost anthropological story. But it morphed, as things seem to, in, in Kulika's case in particular, it morphed into something by accident linked to the Khmer Rouge because the, the particular grandfather in this village who was basically protecting and preserving all these customs, as she dug further and sort of went deeper into his backstory, it turned out that he was actually in the Khmer Rouge and actually was not, not senior senior, but he was certainly known about by the Documentation Centre of Cambodia. And, you know, he's certainly recorded as... As, as significant enough for his name to be on record as, as one of the Khmer Rouge regional leaders. So again, you this kind of light and dark yin and yang that we know in Cambodia and the fact that, you know, this person who's now preserving culture in Cambodia and is so strong in his village in preserving lifestyles and ways of life, in fact, had this dark past. And, and part of the story will, of course, ultimately be this kind of confrontation with his past and trying to square the circle of, you know, how can this man be so good, but yet has also done whatever he he did back in the days so i think that will be a very interesting documentary when that sees the light of day and there's also other projects ongoing um as well you know we there's a recent one that came out was mekong 2030 which was a series of short films on the future of the mekong looking 10 years ahead and what what that future might hold so that had a five directors one from each of the mekong countries so kulika directed um soul river which was about the mekong in cambodia and then you had a 
a Laotian, a Myanmar, a Thai and a Vietnamese director, each directing their own vision and their own short on the Mekong. And of course, that was meant to be rolling out all around the world <laughs> at different film festivals. So in fact, in April, we should have been, last April, I mean, April 2020, we should have been in Tribeca at Robert De Niro's Tribeca Film Festival, showcasing that film. But of course, everything ground to a halt with the pandemic. And basically, it's been shown virtually at all these virtual film festivals. But I th think there's hope that because a lot of films have been on hold and production's been on hold for so long that perhaps if things uh, ease up and that travel is possible again sometime in 21, that some of these festivals will actually reschedule having the films live at the festival because they won't have as much content as they would have in a normal year. So fingers crossed, we might still get to New York. <laughs> fingers crossed, absolutely. Well, Nick, Nick, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your busy schedule and uh, please pass my very best wishes to Kulika and the family and, and all the wider Hanuman team. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much, Gary. Thanks for having me on the show.